In 2012, just down the road from us, they announced about a week ahead of time that President Barack Obama would descend upon UNC Chapel Hill's campus. Secret Service went ahead of them, and, and when this sort of thing happens, they, they, they scour every nook and cranny of the, of the place and sweep and secure it all. The old well was taped off. Crowds of students looked on. They had their smartphones in hand. I, I wonder when people look at these pictures years down the road what they're going to think, like what is going to be the thing. You know, we're all holding our smartphones, like probably Google Glass or something, right? The student body was really energized by this. There was a ticket line that snaked all around onto like Fetzer Field, like all around the track. Some students even camped out. This is a novel concept for that fan base. It was really adorable. There were some really awesome moments that week, like when the Roots showed up at an open mic night in Carborough, or when Questlove ran up like this huge bill at CD Alley on Franklin Street. You see, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon was just gaining steam, and Carmichael Arena seemed like the perfect venue for President Obama to talk about crippling student debt. He seemed to kind of slow jam the good news to the poor, release to the captives. Yeah, okay, that's maybe a little bit of an exaggeration. But President Obama's always been really savvy about marketing and communicating towards these near messianic expectations we all have in us for our leaders and our processes. We hope for change through our political leadership, perhaps only a little less forcefully than we hope in our sports teams and bring our desires and emotions around them or, or maybe our kids. I, I mean, that egg hunt, there were like parents that were like, it was kind of weird. But inside of all this is a, a shadowy and sometimes disturbing reality, uh, like a recognition in us that things are not the way they should be and I can't really control that very well. That the system is corrupt and unjust that I'm either currently the victim of it all or I'm deathly afraid that I'm going to be the victim of it, so I'm going to put up my defenses early. There's this recognition somewhere deep down in all of us that someone has to fix it. Someone has to lead us. We need someone to have it under control because we don't. God, save us. Hosanna. In our gospel story today from Mark, we find Jesus passing through Bethany and Bethpage on the way to Jerusalem. He makes some arrangements. He directs his envoy, right? He says to his disciples that they have to go to town and grab a colt. Other gospels refer to it as a donkey that's tied up. That's going to be his steed. That's Air Force One for Jesus, right? You see, horses and even half-horses weren't really ridden too much in the ancient Near East. They're mostly beasts of burden, what you'd put your packs on. But there were a couple specific times when a horse would be ridden. When a king went out to war, you see that was before Black Hawk helicopters or aircraft carriers, there were war horses. 
or when a king comes home. All this is happening during Passover and in a, in a place that quadruples in size during that festival. So you can imagine the occupying power of the Romans would be a little skittish at this time, just for sheer mass of people. Think, think some of these protests that you see when you turn on cable news, like how nervous all of the systems of these cities are when there's just too many people in the streets. And then Jesus comes into town. He comes in fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Sing aloud, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king has come to you. He is righteous and victorious. He is, rum he is humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the offspring of a donkey. Righteous, victorious, humble. And Jesus steps right into this pattern and expectation. You see, the pattern was that a king would ride into a city proclaiming a victory that already happened. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Then he's greeted as he enters, and he's celebrated with language. That's, it's divine language. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then his visit climaxes as he enters the temple to either offer sacrifices or to, to cleanse a place of unpleasing and corrupt worship that has been happening while he's been gone. I always think of Robin Hood when I think of this. I, I think of all the junk that is going on when the king is gone, and they just long for him to return. And then in Jesus' context, around 200 years prior to this, Someone named Judas Maccabeus, a Jewish rebel, entered with similar fanfare over palms with shouts before entering the temple to do away with pagan worship that was, that was profaning this true worship of the true God. It was all happening by this occupying Seleucid empire. You see, this is revolutionary stuff that Jesus is walking into. Maccabeus, his name meant hammer, right? He was the blunt force that vindicated God's people, and this victory still rung in their ears as they drifted back into subtle unfaith that would cause the need for Jesus to come Later on, we'll read in this gospel, to, to come into that same temple and rail against the ways God's worship was being distorted, the ways people were being exploited, the way true worship of the true God was being threatened. And if, 2000, or if 200 years seems like a long time, it is. But I think it's so recent enough for those reverberations of what happened there to significantly shape their culture and their expectations. After all, most of us don't know a whole lot about the War of 1812. Do you think about that much? That's about 200 years ago. But I venture all of us know the words to the Star-Spangled Banner written as a victory anthem. Along with this, I think sometimes we underestimate this, this definition, this part of the gospel. 
the good news. In our efforts to, to really internalize the fact that God is for us, which I, I think he is. I think that's the bedrock. That's the engine of our lives. I think sometimes we privatize that good news. We mute the fact that this good news is an announcement to the world that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar, not Barack Obama, not a presumptive candidate in November, not your boss, not your spouse, not your father-in-law, not a roommate, not a preceptor. Jesus is Lord. Not some vague tape run that's always running in the background of your mind so much that it's white noise and you don't even hear it. That tells you that the way things have been or the sins that you've committed necessarily have to be the status quo. Not that. Jesus is Lord. Not your social status or your skin color or your gender or your self-esteem. Jesus is Lord. That's the good news. Not some sin or some lie or some fear that you live into and that you perpetuate and you, that you let rule you. Jesus is Lord. Some of those things that I listed might even at times be good things. But none of those are the good news. Jesus is Lord. God has kept his promises. The kingdom is coming and in Christ it's here. So what's our response to that? Well, it's simply put by, by someone who some of you might have read, Dallas Willard. He says that that means, quote, rethink how you've been living your life in light of your opportunity to live in God's kingdom today and forever by putting your confidence in him. That's faith, trust, hope, this is the announcement for us to hear and for us to tell. The king and kingdom have come. Given that, it's really strange how frequently Mark shows Jesus' secrecy. Perhaps it's because such a king and kingdom are ungainly to our sensibilities sometimes. Even us who know the king. Palm Sunday gives us that reset each year as we enter this home stretch to the cross. Maybe we can imagine ourselves lining the street, participating in this excitement, that this could be the one. Jesus could be the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all those expectations, hope in person. This humble King Jesus is the one who deserves our adoration. This humble King Jesus deserves everything from us. And I think our story shows some acceptable responses to this. Even as these people don't quite get it, they don't have the full picture and they don't have the privilege of the hindsight that we have, some of these acceptable responses are take off your garments and be part of the road for this King to come on in. Throw your palms on the road. Shout Hosanna, God save us, be with us, we need you. 
I want to take a little closer look at each of these blessings on the coming kingdom. First, the, the garments. Those pressed up against each other, all just trying to catch a glimpse. Strip off their tunics and lay them at the feet of this colt. His disciples take off theirs as well and they put them under Jesus. That's like his saddle. Maybe this is our best way to encounter the coming king and kingdom. By stripping ourselves bare before Jesus. What if we take off the things that we clothe ourselves with? That we mask ourselves? That we protect ourselves with? What if we laid them at the feet of Jesus? Ask yourself that this week. What are the things that I'm covering myself with? What are the things that I'm using as a defense mechanism? And let me lay them at the feet of Jesus. Scripture has long used the metaphor of clothing to talk about our lives with God. If you remember in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God makes for them a garment out of animal skins to cover and hide our ancestors from their sin and shame. Then later on, Paul uses this image of putting on Christ all the way to the end with the white robes of the saints who have been killed in Jesus' name gathering around the throne of the Lamb. This is so different than the way we normally try to engage with God. The way that we try to really engage with anything. We've built up huge technologies to allow us to keep our distance. To allow us to have some sort of, we, we have our privacy settings, you know. Like, like we kind of do that with our whole lives, not just like computer stuff. But we put these privacy settings up or we, we put these um, uh shields of anonymity up to protect us. We feel strong and sure and right when we kind of hide behind these things. So often this sort of engagement is exactly the opposite of what's being asked of us when we meet Jesus on the road to the cross. All this sort of thing is a, a covering up, a putting on, a protection rather than a stripping off, a laying bare a submission, a vulnerability, an abandon. Here you can't hide and you no longer need to. Here on the way to the cross, what can be considered both Jesus' greatest defeat and greatest victory, Jesus' humiliation and his coronation, those around Jesus throw down their clothes to make a way for him. To make a way for the one who in the next week would be before Pilate and himself would be stripped bare for our sake. Ironically, the crowd and they're hoping that Jesus would be the legitimate Messiah of their hopes. That he would set them free and usher in a new social order where sin and evil loses and God wins. They they themselves kind of predict and preview the lengths Jesus is going to have to go to to achieve all that, being made nothing, taking on death, even death on a cross. 
in another weird, bittersweet way, they also preview what the Christian life looks like. Constantly being stripped of the things that cover and secure us, that conceal us and comfort us. For Jesus' sake and for the sake of the world, we're stripped of those things. This is how we bless the coming kingdom, by becoming part of the parade towards the cross. This week, I I read this blog post or article, and it it referenced this really silly bit that some of you have seen. Has anyone ever seen the show Portlandia? And they have this kind of quintessential bit where it's basically like like hipster SNL. And uh, they have this quintessential bit where these guys are at this restaurant and they're and they're needling the server. Is is the chicken local? They say no. Like, is it really local? And they go through all the the preposterous like designations. And, and then they they ask if the chicken had a name, and the server says yes. Its name was Colin. And they ask, did Colin have friends? You know, they really want to drill in on how local this chicken was. And and I couldn't help but think. Um, and and the 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 the, uh, the point of the article was. Is this Jesus local? Like, is that in our witness that Jesus is is so present and so here and so reflective, but also redemptive of who is around us, our neighbors, our friends, even our enemies in our midst? And and reading that, I couldn't help but wonder, with this first point of us stripping bare, like, is this local for us? Like. And, and I think it is, because I look around and I see that even in this congregation. Like, I see that stripping bare, that vulnerability. Um, two weeks, or a week and a half ago when we were at Ecclesia, I, I, I saw this, um, and I think others saw this when, when we um, just sat down in a, the first prayer meeting and, and, and separately, Rachel and I just kind of like, melted down (laughs) like we kind of like lost it and and ironically enough like that made the rest of our time stronger and safer because people came around that and 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 stepped into that I've seen that here in our prayers of the people time just even in the last couple months that some of the, the the personal traumas that we've experienced together are bringing us closer in Christ and and Christ by his spirit is inserting himself into these situations and binding us together in ways that wouldn't be possible without that stripping bare. So I encourage you during prayers of the people, like if, if that's in you, if it's, a, if it's a, a prayer of lament or if it's a prayer of praise to let that out, that, and I, I realize that requires so much vulnerability, but that is exactly what God wants of us and that is exactly where God will work with us. I see this stripping bare with our with our parents and and especially our moms who who just give and give and give to these kids who can't give anything to them but can only take. I see that locally, extremely locally in our relationships. When I see people loving each other sacrificially, learning like I, when we do premarital counseling, um, I tell people that you're marriage and and even everything before that your engagement and your dating and even pre-dating is a laboratory of learning how to love and how to give yourself i see this 
locally. So yes, I, I think I can answer, yes, this Jesus is local. Yes, this stripping, this vulnerability, this abandon is local as well. The second thing that we see on this road to the cross are, are the, the, the followers, the, the people lining the roads, throwing branches down on the road before Jesus. Mark's gospel tells of these people laying greenery down at Jesus' feet. Matthew and Luke talk more specifically about palms and branches. We wave these palms, and it's tactile. It's tangible. It's a way to get into the action. We remind our bodies how to get excited. Sometimes we need that. Isn't that weird that we need that? Like we, we don't need that at Cameron Indoor Stadium or Motorco or even at Lakewood Summer Blast. That's an ad, June 22nd through 26th. But so often we need that with our life with God. Our following Je- in our following Jesus, we forget, I think. I think this betrays, like it's, it's not the result, but it's kind of a symptom. It betrays that we forget how animated this world is, of which our bodies are a part of that world, with what God has done and is doing and will yet do in Christ. I like to think that laying these palms down, and this is another highly symbolic gesture of welcoming and submitting to royalty, that laying these palms down somehow tunes us into creation's buzz for Jesus to come. I mean, we even see that a little in the story that, you know, he instructs them to get this donkey, presumably, like, kind of random, kind of stealing. But when you're asked about it, say, Its master needs it, that Jesus is master even of this animal. We see that throughout Scripture and the Gospels, that when our hands are too quiet, the trees of the field will clap their hands. How about that? Or because if we keep too quiet, the rocks will cry out the praises of our Savior. We get tapped into this mysterious, majestic story. And it's a story that, uh, throughout Scripture, that includes a tree, right? A tree that runs through the whole of Scripture, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, to the tree that Christ was hung on Calvary, to this garden city in Revelation, where the tree contains the leaves for the healing of the nations. A tree runs through it all. All creation participates in salvation, even as it groans, and we groan with it, groans for renewal. To bless the coming kingdom is to be tuned into and expecting this sort of animation, this sort of connection, this sort of spirit activity all around us at every turn, in the neighborhood, in our homes, at work, in our chance run-ins. I think that's one of my favorite things about when we do uh, first about being in this neighborhood, but also um, when, we, when we do events like we did yesterday. You now we're situated perfectly in this cluster of neighborhoods. Like, after an event like yesterday, I'm always amazed and exhausted. 
by how many different lives and how many different stories are right in our midst. Like, you don't have to go anywhere. You just have to open your eyes. Stories and lives that I'd never have access to unless I walk around with the expectation that God is at work, that his spirit has gone ahead of me, that these people might be strangers to me, but they're not strangers to God. He knows every corner of this neighborhood, every corner of this world. The, the, the parts we like, like the clean, fun, like exciting parts, the endearing parts, but he also knows the dark, scary, dirty, unsafe parts, and he's somehow at work there too, maybe through us. To bless the kingdom means to lay down our palm branches, to submit to our connectedness, our locatedness, to submit those to him and to prepare to be amazed as we participate in this kingdom. As we act as ministers of reconciliation, having been reconciled to God in Christ. Here's another image. As we act as connoisseurs who've tasted and seen the Lord's goodness and we can describe it and we can put it in front of someone and we can have our taste buds reformed around that sweetness as we generously put it in front of one of our friends or one of our new friends or one of our not yet friends. And lastly in our story, the crowds shout, Hosanna, God save us. Finally, we raise our voices to bless the coming kingdom. The shouts are Hosanna, blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, Hosanna in the highest. If you're wondering what that means, Hosanna means God, save us. It's a quote from Psalm 118. Open for me the gates of the righteousness, uh, of the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You became my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. And here's the Hosanna part. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. I love Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase. Kind of prefigures George Costanza here. And he says, salvation now, God, salvation now. The Hebrew word for this is, of course, Hosanna, salvation, save us. It's this cry, save us. Save me, that we cry as we enter into Holy Week. The week where Jesus embraces the only thing that could ever save you and I. His death for our sake. It's this cry, save us, save me, that I so often bypass. <laughs> I just skip straight to despair 
or game planning or getting someone else's hot take. I check out a book to read about it. You know, someone knows how to fix it. Or I get paralyzed by fear or my own sin. I live in a place of scarcity. Instead, we simply cry, God, save us. Save me. As we look to the king, as we look to the cross, we throw down our security and our comfort. We reconfigure our imaginations for God's activity in the world. And we beg God, save us. Bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Will you pray with me? Lord, save us. And let that cry, Hosanna, be on our lips at all times. Lord, for those of us you have saved, are saving and will save, let that be our refrain. Lord, for those in our midst and in our neighborhood and in our lives that haven't tasted your salvation, Lord, put that offer on our lips. Let us bear witness in the stripping of ourselves, the offering of ourselves and vulnerability to them that we show off you, we show off that marvelous thing that you've done, that thing that is marvelous in our eyes, Christ on the cross, Christ to be risen for our sake. Lord, let us throw all this down at your feet that we might prepare your way in our lives. We pray all this in the strong, victorious name of Jesus. Amen.